stuff. Hmm. Okay, we're good? Now we're working. All right, good. You got that little pop there. It woke you up, right? Those of you that were into that prayer time after that song, what a great song. Today we are in a continual story that we started a number of months ago in which we began from Genesis and today we're going to move ourselves almost out of the Old Testament. So we've gone from Genesis all the way through Kings. Last, last week we talked about Judges. We spent about 450 years on that. No, I mean 45 minutes. And we dealt with the Judges and all this variety of different things. And today we're going to talk about this interesting picture that God is trying to give us. We've been showing kind of like a series of slides, if you'd like it. It's been slide after slide after slide of how God has been moving through creation from the beginning to the present time. But as we walk through the Bible, we see again and again God's hand showing up, doing specific things in specific ways because he has an intention in mind all along. You see, sin's birth came about in the beginning of creation itself. And the result of sin's birth of death for all mankind. But the death of our Savior led to the penalty being demolished and the provision of life for all mankind who had previously been defeated by sin. So today what we want to look at is the final days of Israel, this nation that God had set up through which he would bring forth his one and only son so that we could have a relationship with him and so we could experience God's story in our own lives. That was the purpose, that was the plan, that was the intention. So Israel is this wondrous nation that God has set up that he's going to bring through specific people his own son Jesus in a specific way through a series of prophetic declarations so we could know for sure without any doubt that he was God's one and only son. So today we're going to look at the final days of the nation that we know as Israel. Say that with me. Say Israel. Okay, so that's what we're going to deal with. The final days of Israel as a kingdom. Now remember, it's been set up as a kingdom. These people who were previously slaves have now become landowners. They find themselves for over 450 years working with God and the judges and prophets. And they say, now we want to have a king. God says, you don't want to have a king. You think you do, but you don't. They said, no, we want to have a king. So God says, okay, allows them to have a king. The first king is Saul. The second king is who? David, exactly. So David comes on the scene, and David is called a man after God's own what? Heart, exactly. So he's a man who desires what God desires. That's where we finished last week. Now, I want to give us a primary verse for today, and it's found in Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.13, it says this. Read it with me. We are faithless. He remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. Let's hold on for just one second. I seem to have an issue here. What are we going to do? I'll start all over again, all right? 
So even if we remain faithless, he remains faithful. The amazing thing in this story that we see of all of Israel is how faithless they are again and again and again. But God remains faithful through it all. And he shows himself continually involved and committed to Israel and to all the people so that they themselves can experience the wonder of God's miracles and majesty over and over and over again. We're going to look through three lenses today. First lens is that of the kings. David is the second king given, but now there are going to be a variety of kings that are going to come through the entire nation of Israel. We're only going to touch on a couple of them. Then we're going to look at what I call the leaders. These are men who are going to be raised up after the kings have failed Israel entirely, and Israel is no more. Israel will be defeated. They'll be taken into Assyria and into Babylon. They will no longer exist as a nation. Done. Finish. No more. But God will raise up a couple key leaders. We know them as Ezra and Nehemiah. Two prime leaders that God raises up out of the ashes, so to speak. They come out of Babylon and Assyria. They reestablish, rebuild the wall, first of all, which is Nehemiah, does the wall building. Ezra rebuilds the temple, although to a far minor state than the measure that had been built up under a king called Solomon. All of you know Solomon, who builds this incredible, marvelous temple. Then we're going to look at the prophets. The prophets. And what they continue to say about what God is doing, what he has done, and what he intends to do. And primarily, they begin to focus on the Messiah who is to come. And they begin to say over and over, all the people of Israel, those that are left, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Passover becomes a prime place in which all of Israel begins to declare, what do you think they're declaring? The what? Messiah is coming. The Messiah. So now the Passover is all about the Messiah who is to come. And as they take of these four special cups in Passover, the focus is on the coming Messiah. Because that's all they have to look forward to because the nation of Israel is no more. It doesn't exist as we know it. It's a paltry statement of what it used to be. And by the time the Roman occupation comes into play, Israel is just this tiny little gathering of irritating Jews. And I use the Romans' focus on them. They're called irritating Jews because they won't give in. They keep fighting. They keep continuing to declare themselves as special, as some kind of nation that God has honored in a special way. And the Romans are going, honored you? You got nothing. You have nothing. They keep saying, the Messiah's coming. The Messiah's coming. The Messiah's coming. And then we begin to understand in the New Testament why... Herod was so focused and afraid of this king that was coming. Because Daniel prophesied that a specific point in time the king would come. And the time of Herod was the time that all the rabbis understood the Messiah was going to come any day, any year, any time. So they were looking for this king who was going to establish himself as the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, over all. That's today's message. We're done. Let's start all over again. 
Someone said, that was a quick one, Pastor. That's amazing. But that's the whole message. The difference is we're going to walk through that step by step. Let's start with the kings. Ezekiel says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. Ezekiel chapter 37. Through this entire chapter, it's a declaration by Ezekiel of a David, but we know David's already dead, a David who will come and will give direction and guidance over all of Israel. In fact, he will be so powerful that he will govern all nations and all peoples. So Ezekiel begins to speak of this truth, and we see it here in Israel, has begun to develop over these last 400 years, and that's how long it's going to take now. It seems to be in 400-year spans, by the way, if you want to get something in your head. 400-year spans seem to be an obvious thing God's doing. Next 400 years, we have kings. And during this 400-year period, everybody's looking back to the king, because there's only one really powerful, thoughtful, encouraging stable king, and his name was, guess what it was? David. No, some people thought Solomon. No, they kind of thought of Solomon as the, as the bastard son of Bathsheba. He wasn't, but it was still kind of that thought. Sorry about that terminology, but that's, that's what it was. So, so Solomon was seen as this kind of offshoot of Bathsheba, who was the divorced uh, woman here in this case, not even divorced, but he actually put to death her husband. And that's where Solomon's going to come out of that birth. So you can see the picture of Israel going... Solomon's going to be king? Oh, I don't even like the idea of it. But because he's so incredibly remarkable, they put up with him. David is always seen as the only true king. And that's why all the way up to the time of Jesus, they talk about David, David, David. That's all they ever talk about is this wonderful king, David. Saying, David, it's been 800 years since David was around, folks. Surely you're getting over David. And Jesus speaks to the issue and he says, actually, David was speaking about me. Me. All along, when they talked about this David, it's a representation of me as his relative because I came through the line of David himself. So David, the one who earns the throne, the only king who truly earns the throne, and they're right about that, all the other kings either inherit or somehow take it over. He earns the throne, and so he's seen as this wonderful man after God's own heart who desired to follow God, and though he failed, he continued to be transparent. He continued to be a man who desired what God desired. David now is coming to the end of his life. And he's gone through two different sons who have rebelled against him. One son, Absalom, has gone through a whole series of rebellion, almost took over the kingdom, but through a series of fighting and struggles, David is able to get it back. Absalom is killed. He's, he's decimated by that, that his son, this son has been put to death by one of his men because of what he's done. And he has another son, another older son, Abijah. Abijah says, you know, I really think I deserve to be king next. David's old. He stayed in the castle now. He's ready to die. He's just finished up his last few days. Abijah starts saying, I'm going to be the new king. I'm going to be the new king. Tells everybody about it. Bathsheba comes to see David and says, David, have you heard about Abijah? And David says, what are you talking about? He said, Abijah's declared himself as king. I thought my son Solomon was going to be king. David goes, hmm. I'll take care of this problem. So he goes out, puts Solomon on a donkey. Sounds kind of familiar. 
okay, declares him as king, the one whom David has decided will be king. Solomon goes out, he's declared as king, and he becomes the next king of Israel following David. So Solomon is seen as this powerful person whom David has set up as king. Solomon, now, after he's been crowned, recognized who he is, has this marvelous situation in which he begins to respond to God's direction and desire in his heart. And he is overwhelmed by what is happening to him and what God has done. And so in a dream, God speaks to him. And God says, Solomon, what is it you desire? And Solomon says, God, all I want is wisdom and understanding and the ability to govern your kingdom, to lead him in the place that you want me to go. And God is so impressed by his response to him in this dream that God says to him, not only will you have wisdom that will be considered almost supernatural, not only will you build my kingdom in a marvelous way, but I will also provide for you more money than you ever thought possible. I will give you more things than you ever thought things could be. I will give you everything. In fact, I'll give you more than everything anyone could even imagine in relationship to life and in relationship to the majesty of the kingdom I will give you. So Solomon wakes up, responds to God, sees what he's told him to do, and then he begins to watch God working in supernatural ways. You remember the simple story about the woman who comes to him? Two women, the, one has a baby. She says, my baby has... You remember the story? I'm not going to tell it for you then, Okay. You know this story, and Solomon does this marvelous thing, and he just simply says, well, just cut the baby in two, give half to each one. And, of course, the mother, who's really the mother, says, no, give the baby to the other woman. I can't have my child die. And he yells, oh, give the, give the baby to the one who obviously didn't want it to, to be put to death because that's the real mother. It's obvious who the real mother is. So that's the beginning of wisdom shown to us. And then Solomon shows this incredibly supernatural understanding of all areas. In fact, he becomes such a dynamic architect that he builds something referred to as Solomon's temple and the, and the temple of God himself. So you have what's called Solomon's temple or Solomon's palace, and then you have the temple of God that's built by him. He has this incredible, almost supernatural understanding of how to put things together in terms of buildings and dams and structures. You can see all this in the book of Ecclesiastes, by the way. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll see all the things that Solomon did. Marvelous things that went into place. And then it goes on to say that people as far as Egypt and all the way around the Queen of Sheba himself came to hear from this incredible person the marvelous wisdom and understanding that he had. His comprehension of life and meaning and what it was about. And person after person declared that he was truly a miraculous, miraculous person whom God had set into place as the king over all Israel. Now, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8 with me. See if you can find that. 1 Kings chapter 8. If you've got your outlines with you, I'll help you a little bit along that. I think the scripture's there. 1 Kings chapter 8. In this particular chapter, we see Solomon responding. And the reason I want you to hear this is because this is Solomon's perspicacious prayer, I'll call it. His perspicacious prayer, because it's not only a prayer of presence, it's a prayer about the future, in which he understands what's going to happen to Israel and to himself, 
and how they can respond to the sin that will begin to bring forth destruction into their lives and into the life of all of Israel itself. And so he prays this prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, starting with verse 33. And he says this, When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land that you gave to their ancestors. This prayer is a recognition of what will take place despite the fact of the wonder of the temple as he sits there and he shows this temple that is so incredible people can't believe what they're seeing before their eyes and all of Israel is rejoicing over this majestic presentation and the power of God the glory of God as goes into the temple and as they see all these things Solomon says now when you fail when you fall into sin When you don't know what to do because you're saying, God, I can't believe I did that. This is what you do. Repent and pray. And God will hear your prayers. And he will renew you. And he will revive you. And he'll bring you back to the place that you and he both desire to be. This prayer shows Solomon's willingness and desire to follow God. But unfortunately... As is common in this theme of kings and their families, Solomon's sons will not. So his sons, as they are brought up, are obviously brought up without a relationship with Solomon. He is so busy building the kingdom that he has no time to build his family. Now we're reminded that God tells us back in Deuteronomy, and Eric's going to speak on this Uh, on Mother's Day, as we got coming up here. In Deuteronomy, we're reminded that the directive of God is to share your relationship that you have with God with your children on a regular, consistent basis. He says you need to share it with them when you're, you know, walking with the oxen, those of you that walk with oxen, okay? (laughs) You're supposed to share with them when you're in your house, in your home, when you're in your bed. When you're in the living room, when you're watching TV, my kids, it always drives them nuts when I, when I bring up. Now, let's think about what was just said to us on that program. I go, Dad, do we need another sermon one more time? And I'm going, yes, I think we do. And they're going, okay, here we go. And all the time, you're supposed to be sharing with your children your relationship with God and how important it is to you and how important it can be to them. And they begin to catch the reality of who God is and how he desires to work in their life as well. Solomon had no relationship. And we learned earlier on that when you provide rules without relationship, the result is what? Rebellion. Rules without relationship always end in rebellion. Guaranteed. Absolutely, totally guaranteed. Rules without relationship result in rebellion. And Solomon's legacy becomes one of a divided kingdom, not a united one. So as we walk through these series of directives to, to Solomon, 1 Kings 9, 9, there's a warning that's given to him. 
And God says, if you're going to fall to your own ego and begin to worship other gods and follow other people in a misunderstanding of who I am and what I'm all about, thinking that you're shielded from that because, after all, you know all about God and these little gods don't really affect you at all, you will fall and you will fail. And then 1 Kings 11:1, 1, he says, Solomon, you need to be very, very careful because you're going to have a problem. And so... 1 Kings 11.1 1 says this, Solomon loved many wives, foreign wives, who followed after other gods, and he began to follow them as well. The final consequence of his children being disconnected with him, fearful to one another, was a breaking down of the very kingdom that Solomon had spent his entire life making that was renowned throughout, throughout all the nations around him. And that disconnect is so powerful that the sons themselves, as they set up the kingdom following Solomon, end up making two separate kingdoms. There's a division of the kingdoms. So Israel becomes one kingdom. Judah becomes another kingdom. How does this happen? Well, there are two sons. One's called Rehoboam. The other one's called Jeroboam. And between the two of them, they fall into an area of sin that's so powerful that God says, this is it. I now have to bring forth penalty upon you for what you've done. In 2 Kings Kings 17, verse 1, I'll read it for you. It says, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah... Hoshea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He, did, he didn't do it as badly as some of the other kings who preceded him. That's always interesting, huh? Hmm. So the king of Assyria, however, came up to attack him. He discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to the king of Egypt. And he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria. Therefore, Shalemazer seized him. He put him into prison. And the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, laid siege to it for three years. And in the ninth year, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala in Goshen on the Harbor River in the towns of the Medes. And this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They followed the practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the king of Israel's had introduced to them. So now we see that God has said, I'm done with this. Penalty must take place. And the northern tribe, which is made up of ten different tribes, and also known as Israel, falls to Assyria. Falls to Assyria. This is in 722 B.C. So we see the falling of the tribes. Israel is no more. There's one tribe left, and the tribe is referred to as Judah. Judah is the only tribe left, and Judah is also known as now the southern kingdom upon which Rehoboam rules. Remember, Jeroboam is one son. Rehoboam is the other son. Rehoboam is ruling this. 
He is the foolish leader who Solomon had set up to rule all of the kingdom, but who failed to follow the directives of wise counsel and instead gave in, did some stupid things, and Israel, those other ten tribes, left him and went off on their own following Jeroboam. Are you totally confused? Okay. It's like, really? All this is happening? Okay, so let's make a quick flip back. Two kings, Rehoboam, Jeroboam. They're the sons of who? Solomon. Okay, so these two guys decide they're going to rule Israel. All of Israel. Decide we're going to rule all of Israel. But who's going to do it? Rehoboam thinks he should. Jeroboam thinks he should. So they have a little bit of a fight there goes on. Solomon says, no, it's going to be Rehoboam. Rehoboam says, okay. He sets himself up as king. All of Israel comes before him and says, you are now our new king. He says, okay, well, Solomon gave you big taxes. I'm going to double them. I'm going to triple them. And all of them said, we're not going to do that. He said, yes, you are. They said, no, we're not. And they left. They left his reign. They said, we will no longer be subservient to you as king. When they left... Jeroboam shows up and says, hey, I'm the other son. I'm the older son. I'm the favored son. I'm the one who should have been king all along. So they said, you're right. We want you as king. He's a smarter guy. Does not put upon them these huge taxes and begins to rule over Israel. Now you got it? So that's what happened. Now, unfortunately, he's not following God's directive for his life. And the result is they continue to follow practices that are other than those that God has set up. They don't follow the Ten Commandments. They follow their own ideas and their own rules. They begin to worship other gods. And God says, that's it. And he brings against them the nation of Assyria. And Assyria attacks and destroys all of what is known then as Israel, the Ten Tribes. He deports them off and has them broken down into different towns and villages and various areas, but no one is left in Israel that has any power or any understanding. It's just put up by various vassals of Assyria. Now, there's one kingdom left, though, because the northern kingdom, oddly enough, who was under, at this time, uh, a guy by the name of, of, of uh, Rehoboam, okay, Rehoboam has this one tribe that he's giving directions over, and this tribe is still kind of holding there, somewhat because it's so small that it's not worth messing with. Okay? So he continues to go on for about 100 years after Israel has been destroyed. He continues on. But he's failing as well. The kings are a little better than the kings were under Israel, under Judah. They're a little better, but they're not doing really great. They're still struggling. They continue to fall against God and fail to follow him. 100 years later, God brings in a thing called Babylon. We all heard of Babylon. Babylon comes in, takes out this kingdom. The result of this is simple. Israel, as we know it, this wonderful kingdom that God has set up, no longer exists. They've lost their identity. They said, it's done. It's over with. It's finished. We are no more. Got it? Got it. So Israel has lost their identity. And they find themselves in relationship to the kings, as God told them. If you set up kings and follow them, you'll just end up being totally destroyed. And that's exactly what happens. So now Israel is thinking, we're done with. It's over. The promise, the, the things that God was going to do are over. We're finished. 
Nothing good is going to happen anymore. They're wrong. God begins to bring up what we call leaders. Two key leaders. One is by the name of Nehemiah, and the second one is by the name of Ezra. They're brought out of Babylon and out of Assyria by God's hand and put into position so they can rebuild the walls and bring safety to the people so they can begin to resettle in Israel, in Jerusalem more specifically. And Ezra, who is a priest, begins to rebuild the temple. So this marvelous structure begins to happen. Nehemiah, who is a a man of God and desires to follow him, And follows his direction, begins to reset up Israel as a nation. Small nation, but still a nation. And he begins to teach them they must live out the kingdom of God within their homes and their structures. In this case, the kingdom of Israel, which is to be seen as God's priests, as God's people, as God's light to the world, just as we are as Christians. So Nehemiah begins to set this up to bring security and safety to all the people. And God continues to do some great stuff. Then he brings in Ezra, who begins to restore the temple. He rebuilds it. The two of them join together. And they declare the wonder of God and what he has done to all the people. And the people rejoice in giving thanks. Except for a small group of the people, it says, who remembered the glory of the temple and remembered the glory of Israel before. And they wept. For all that had been lost. Wow. And the people are assuming that God will never again step in and make the change here. But the reality is here. Just as God rebuilt and restored the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. So he would also bring about a resurrection of Israel itself being seen as a mighty and powerful nation. But in reality, he's going to do something different. And Jeremiah puts it this way. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And the prophets began to declare this miraculous, powerful, new thing that's going to happen that will be bigger and better than anything that ever happened before. They began to cry out about the new days that are coming about David who will come, about the power of God who will be seen to all nations, about Israel being the nation of nations, of being the place in which God will rule and establish himself. And prophet after prophet begins to declare it. This is what the sovereign Lord says, Ezekiel 36. I will take the Israelites out of the nation where they have gone. I'll gather them from all around. I'll bring them back into their own land. I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And there'll be one king over all of them. And they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. No longer Judah and Israel. It'll be Israel. There'll be a recognition of God's power. And the prophets keep speaking of the resurgence of Israel. That one day it'll be a nation. A nation that's incredibly powerful, filled with the presence of God, filled with His power, declaring over and over again, Isaiah 42, Isaiah says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you. I'll make you a covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. 
And as the Gentiles began to be talked about through the prophetic utterance, they began to question what is going on. And then Daniel, the final prophet, does this marvelous, marvelous declaration of how God will specifically bring forth the anointed one, the Messiah. And he says it so specifically that he gives times and dates. He says, no one understand this. From the time that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, about 445 B.C., Ezra and Nehemiah, we just saw them, right? So Ezra and Nehemiah start the rebuilding process. From the time that they start the restoring and the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, who will come, there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens, 483 years. Why didn't he just say that? I don't know. I don't know. He's got to add it up. He wanted a mathematician in this, I guess. And he says, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death. The anointed one will be what? Put to death. And he will have nothing. Figure out the dates on this. Break it all down. And the date you'll come up with will be 32 A.D. 32 A.D. We're going, what? And as you begin to see that and see this time that the anointed one, the Messiah, who will have power over all creation and all people, he'll rule over Israel. But Israel would just be the place of power through which he will speak and declare. Through all people begin to see God. And the prophecies increase, speaking of the hope of Israel. The Passover yearly declaring over and over, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. Hold on, He's coming. And prophecy after prophecy that we remind ourselves of on Christmas about the specific details of the Messiah, that He'll be born in Bethlehem, through the line of David, that He'll be born of a virgin. And it goes on and on and on, some 300 different prophecies, which if we had another hour today, we'd look at them. But we don't, so we won't. Aren't you happy? (laughs) Going, thanks, you Lord, for good things. We're not going to show that little clip on on the prophecies, even though we could right now. We could walk through some of those, but thing after thing, you go, wow, such amazing things. So get this, the time of the Roman occupation What is Israel expecting to happen? The Messiah is going to come. Because the dates are right. They figured it out. They can do addition. They can do subtraction. They got the math. So when the kings show up to King Herod and say, Hey, we call them wise men, all right? Where is the Messiah who is to be born? And they go to the rabbis, and the rabbi says, well, obviously, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem at this time, whatever. He goes, what? Huh? Daniel had declared this before, and most likely, these three kings of Ori and I, you know, the wise men from the east, they came in recognition of Daniel's prophecies. They had heard. And they responded to it. And they come down here and they expect to see the king. And all of Israel, they expect to see Israel jumping up and down for joy over the king's going to be born. Instead, there's nobody. There's nothing. And they're going, what's going on? Can't you guys add? 
Does anybody ever look up? Star? See the star? Nobody. What is wrong with you people? The angels who have already declared to all of Israel this marvelous host. I wonder about that night. They were out there. Jesus born, the host says, huge light comes up there speaking to the shepherds. Everybody else is sleeping. Marvelous stuff has taken place. Glorious things have happened. The Messiah has been born. And all of Israel should be jumping up and down, excited, overwhelmed with what God had done and what he was about to do. But instead, they're sleeping because their faith had begun to fail. You see, the promise had come. The king was here. But you see the question mark on your outlines because the Israelites weren't so sure. And they continue in this sense of question. A few people believe, but even those who believe, Mary included, wondered what was going on. What was happening? Isaiah 53 made no sense to them. The Messiah is going to be the Messiah. Powerful. God himself present here. He's going to take out everybody and everything. He will be the man. The one, the only one. And Jesus comes as this incredibly powerful person, but so meek and so quiet and so set back. But the scripture says at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. His timing was impeccable. He sent Jesus to Israel just before the Roman Empire would completely destroy the temple and all of Israel would be finished as far as Israel is considered for one last time. And this time the temple would be torn apart brick by brick by brick so there would be nothing left and never again would there be another high priest. Never again would there be a temple because Jesus would fulfill that which that was built for and intended for. Because the glory of Solomon's temple was only intended to declare the glory of God that was to come, that would be present in Jesus himself. And he would begin to show us his credentials. So even John the Baptist, the one who's preparing the way for Jesus, he finds himself in prison with Herod and he says, Are you the one? He sends his guys to Jesus, Are you the one or is there somebody else? Because he's confused. I thought, Jesus, you've got to grab them all and take care of business. Instead, you're healing the people that are sick. You're giving brand new eyes to people that are blind. You're providing food when there is none. You're even turning water into wine. What are you doing? And Jesus says, those are my credentials, John. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who had leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, even the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And John in prison gets it. Oh my God. Oh my God. You intended to set the captives free to deal with the issue of our sin 
and to provide us with the ability to have a relationship with you that could never have been had prior to this time. And though Jesus would show his amazing authority over all of creation and finally over death itself, the declaration of his credentials was in what God did through him and then what God would do to him. So John says, the gospel writer John, through the high priest, the final high priest of Israel, you do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And what that Caiaphas high priest thought he was saying was that Jesus had to die so that the Roman Empire would not destroy Israel. But what he was really saying was that Jesus would have to die so that all the people of all mankind would have the opportunity to have a relationship with God and none would perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. See, that's what all this stuff was about. And we begin to see Israel and kings and prophets and the next period. And suddenly, through all this, God shows himself, says, I've been there all the time. I never left them. I was faithful all the time. Though they were faithless, I continued to bring forth the line that was necessary so my son could be born, so that all people could receive life and hope and meaning and purpose. For sin's birth brought forth the necessity of the Savior's death. The birth of sin led to the penalty of death for all mankind. But the death of the Savior led to the provision of life for all who were defeated by sin. Though we are faithless, He remains faithful. And so we find ourselves every Christmas day reading this statement without understanding what all was said. Look at it, last year outline, read it with me. Okay, last, last line in your outline, read it with me. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. Now, we get it. We get it. All this time. Almost a thousand years since he was declared to be who he was. And now he is here. And though all people, they have the opportunity to walk through the ABCs, admit their sin. Say, God, I desperately need you. I'm in death and I am powerless over this sin that has taken control of me. Please help me. And I believe that Jesus can help me. He's the only one that can deal with my sin, the penalty and the power. And as I ask him to, he enters in and he changes my very inner being through a simple prayer that's not so simple because that prayer brings in the cosmic awareness in my heart and mind of what God has done, what God has set up from the beginning of creation and all who respond 
get to receive this wondrous, glorious power. And God says, from this point on, you need to commit to me. You admit, you believe that Jesus is the one and only son, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he can deal with the penalty, and he can provide me with the power to overcome sin. And then I commit my life to him from that day forward. And I recognize him not just as Savior, the one who's done it all for me, but as Lord, the one who wants to continue to direct my life so I don't fall back to the spot where I was before I came to know him. And that's the story. That's the story that we've been looking at from Genesis. And today we bring it all the way to the Gospel of John. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this marvelous, marvelous word. This Bible that miraculously speaks to us of who you are and what you have done and what you will continue to do. Today, today, Lord, we asked that for each of us here who don't understand who you are, that you might bring them to that understanding and receive you as Lord and Savior. And for those of us that do know you who are called to be lights, who are called to be people who declare your power, allow us that privilege to share the good news of great joy that today in the town of David was born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Now speak to us. Change us. Draw us to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wow. So we only covered 450 years today. Actually, we covered 950 years because we went all the way to Jesus. And uh, next week, Eric's going to deal with the Next period, the final period before Jesus comes, it's going to be, you don't want to miss that. You're going to want to make sure you get it. You can go back now and follow through where we've already gone. Probably a great picture. Is he going to deal a bit with the Maccabees? I think he may be dressed up. I don't know. He's not dressing up. No, 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 no dress. But he could look like a Maccabee, you know. Powerful, powerful stories of how God continues to work through Israel as he brings forth the one and only Son. The one and only Son. Let's think a bit. We're going to ask, uh, right now I'm going to ask somebody to come forward. Glenn, why don't you come on down?